If you, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation. You'll note that just a little theological kind of uh, perspective. It's not the book of Revelations. So when you hear somebody say, it's Revelations, it's not Revelation. It's, it's, it's singular. It's Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so whenever you hear someone say, the book of Revelations, it's, it's not Revelations. It's Revelation. So that's, that's a little theological uh, it gets me annoyed from time to time. So uh, if I could just say it like that. So um, anyway, let me get off my soapbox with that there. Uh, let me get another soapbox. So uh, we're going to be talking about our second M, our multiracial value. And last week we talked about our monastic value, slowing down our lives to be with God. And I mentioned that we are called to slow down our pace so that we can make space, so that we can experience God's transforming grace and today, we're going to focus on what it means to be the new family of Jesus. What does it mean to be a multi-racial uh, uh, community, bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers for Christ? And so we're going to talk about the new family of Jesus. If you're new to our church, uh, you could not have come at a better time because I'm going to give a large uh, picture perspective on what we're trying to do at New Life, what kind of community we're trying to be. And for the next two weeks, I'm going to focus on this particular value. Today, I'm going to focus on it from an individual perspective. What's our response individually, or how do we look at issues pertaining to racial hostility and, and things of that nature as an individual? Next week, I'm going to be referring to it collectively. How do we understand collective, so as it were, how do we understand personal sin in this regards? Next week, I'm going to talk about how do you understand collective sin? How do you understand uh, individual racial prejudice today? How do you understand institutional racism next week? And so I want to look at, you, you, you got to have the perspectives from a, a wide variety of viewpoints in order to really make some progress uh, on this really deep and complicated and divisive and polarizing issue. But we're going to look to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7, verse 9. We'll be back there in a minute. Let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And my hope today, you know, sermons are usually, when I preach sermons, I want to inspire people, but I also want to give a new framework. How do we think differently about the world that we live in? That's what, that's what I'm trying to accomplish today as we think about something as massive as this today. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for gathering us in this room, and thank you for those watching online. And Lord, as we uh, look towards uh, our future as a church, thank you for the ways that uh, through your spirit, uh, barriers of race and culture and economics and gender have uh, come down in the name of Jesus. And we ask that that would continue to happen in our midst. And so, Lord, would you work in us so that you could work through us? We offer this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I want to say from the onset that um, diversity is not the goal of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Diversity is not the end goal of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, diversity has become a major cultural value in our world. And whether we're talking about corporations, whether we're talking about sports, whether we are talking about politics, whether we're talking about schools, people love the idea of diversity. And while diversity is a good goal and it is a noble goal, it is not the end goal of Jesus. And diversity is not the end goal of the kingdom of God. And it is not to be the end goal of a church. Now, the church too often settles 
for diversity. But the reality is the world can do diversity better than the church. The world can tell better stories about diversity than the church. The world has bigger budgets to do this than the church. The world knows how to get different people in different rooms and use diversity as selling points much better than the church can. And so the end of the, at the end of the day, the goal for the church is not diversity. The goal for the church is a new family. And this is what God wants to do in us. God doesn't just want to get different people in a room together. He wants to get different people in a room together to begin to live as a family, as a new kind of family. Now, what often happens in churches is churches uh, begin to stop uh, at a point where we're just happy to get different people in a room together. And we just we're, we're not we don't really want our lives to be touched by their lives. We really don't want our lives to be formed by someone else's life, but we're just happy and content to get different people in a room together. And in a church like ours, with 75 nations represented, it's very easy to come to a church like this and say, oh, we're doing pretty good. There's a lot of different people that are in the room together. But we are, the church is to be more than just uh, what I like to call a sanctified subway car. The church is to be more than just a four train in Manhattan where there's a lot of different people in close proximity to each other, but whose lives are not being really touched by one another. We are called to be a new family, that the Holy Spirit doesn't just want to get different people in the room. He wants to create a new kind of family. And from the beginning of the scriptures, we see that God has always wanted to create a family from different places. At the, at the core of Abraham's call in Genesis 12, God was calling this man Abraham to be a blessing to the nation so that all the nations would be gathered together in worship of this one God. Jews and Gentiles connected together. This, from the very inception of the scriptures, God has wanted to have, as it were, a new kind of family. And so you can't understand the Bible until you see that God is not in the business of simply saving souls, that God is in the business as well of creating a new kind of family. And at New Life, we are called to live into the reality of the kingdom of God, not just being individual people who look different, who are in close proximity to each other, but that our lives are functioning and living as a new kind of family. And yet the problem before us is we often don't have a vision for this kind of life. And we have inherited a way of living through our fallen world, through our sinful hearts, that works against this kind of vision. That each of us has our own prejudices. That the vast majority, if not all of us, have been formed by a kind of ism that works against the new family of Jesus. And so whether it is a classism, whether it is racism, whether it is ethnocentrism, there is a kind of ism that we have all been infected by and infected with that works against the new kind of vision of the new family of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can begin to identify the particular isms that we've been shaped by is to ask a simple question of ourselves. Who do we feel uncomfortable with our children or siblings marrying. Who can your children marry and who can't they marry? As, as one of my professors has said from time to time, the question about the gospel and Christianity is not, can I be your brother in Christ? The question is, can I be your brother-in-law? 
If you are a Korean, can your daughter or son marry an African-American? If you are white, can your son or daughter marry a Dominican? If you are from a well-to-do family, can your son or daughter or sister or brother marry someone from a lower socioeconomic situation? If you are, have one level of education, are you willing to be in friendship with someone from a different, maybe a much lower level of education? If you are a Mets fan, can your daughter marry a Yankees fan? <laughs> no, that's as far as we can go. That's as far as we can go. Now, these questions uh, reveal in us the barriers that we often erect as a way of keeping us disconnected from being the new family of Jesus. But at the end of human history, the picture that we get is a beautiful image of a new family that has been created. And so I want to look at Revelation 7, verse 9, and this is the passage I just want to look at. One of my favorite passages on this topic. It says, hear the word of the Lord. After this, I looked. This is John, the writer, saying, And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, the book of Revelation is one of the most, if not the most, misunderstood book in the entirety of the Bible. And much of the confusion of the book of Revelation that we have is in our approach to reading it. Uh, Most people have looked at the book of Revelation as the handbook to connect the dots on how the world is going to come to a bloody end. But really, Revelation is not how the world is going to come and when the world is going to come to an end. When most people read the book of Revelation, they do so looking for particular clues about who's the Antichrist. And what's the mark of the bees? And then we look at the news, and then we try to connect the dots. It's bad theology. And what often happens is we live paranoid, paranoid lives. Why? Because we've read the book of Revelation in a way that the book of Revelation is not to be read. The book of Revelation is not to be read as a kind of map to identify particular things like that. The book of Revelation, you understand what it is very simply in the word Revelation. The word revelation in the Greek language is this word apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse from, and the word means unveiling. The word revelation, the word apocalypse, simply means the unveiling of what has previously been hidden. The unveiling of what has previously been hidden. This is what apocalyptic literature is all about. So uh, you shouldn't be afraid of the book of Revelation, and you shouldn't be making a lot of bad connections Uh, unhealthy connections, which is what Christians have been doing throughout the years. The world is going to end here. Why? Because the book of Revelation said this, wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, they've been wrong every time, and they have Bible verses to prove it. The word revelation is the word unveiling. It's, It's something that has been hidden that has now been revealed. And so uh, what we tend to see, what, what, what John and what the book of Revelation wants to communicate to us is what we see with our eyes is not the full story. What we often see with our eyes is not the full story, that there is, God is active in ways that we cannot see. And what John does is he, he pulls back the curtains to say, you can't see it with your eyes, but I want to show you in another dimension of reality how God is active. Let me give you a revelation. 
Let me give you an unfolding, an unveiling of how God is already active. And so what the revelation essentially communicates, what Jesus is doing and how Jesus is active and how Jesus is is healing the world and, and where the world is heading when Jesus fully and finally begins to reign. And so in essence, the apocalypse, the revelation is the pulling back of the curtain to give a sneak preview of what's to come when Jesus fully and finally reigns. And that sneak preview is not just to inform us about the future. That sneak preview is to form us in the present. Very important. Whatever we learn from the book of Revelation is not an unveiling to tell us and inform us about the future. It's to form us in the present so that the way we so that we live in the present what is anticipated in the future now listen the christians the church we are to be from the future we are from the future we are to live today what is what is going to happen when jesus fully and finally reigns this is why we believe in healing because in god's future there is no sickness So then in our present, we are anticipating what the future is going to look like. We are from the future. This is why we believe that God can break down walls while there's hostility all over the world, that God can create a new family from people from many different places. Why? Because we're from the future. Whatever's going to be in the future when Jesus fully and finally reigns, we get a sneak preview of that today, and we get to live in that reality today. Amen. That's good news. We are from the future. And so Christians can live with a, uh, with, with, a, with a perspective that the world cannot live with. And our very lives is to be a pointer to the future. It's like the, the church, one of my favorite ways of explaining this is that the church, we, we are to be like a sneak preview. We are to be a trailer of things that's to come. And you know what this is like. You go to the movie theater and you sit with your, your friend, you go by yourself, you sit, or you sit with your spouse or whatever, and there are about 20, it's, it's all, it seems like 20 to 25 minutes of previews now. It's just like I thought the movie said it was going to start at 7. It's 7.45 and the movie hasn't started yet. What is going on? And every time you watch a preview, the 90-second the, the trailer comes up, and then you look at the person next to you and you go, Oh, we're not going to watch that one. And then the next one comes out and you go, oh, we're going to watch that when that comes out. And you do the whole thing. You're going to do that. No, we're not going to watch it. What the movie did was it's wetting your appetite. It's giving you a sneak preview of what's to come so that when it actually comes out, you say, I want to see that. That's what the church is supposed to be. The church is to be a place where when people see our love, when people see our hope, when people see our peace, when people see our joy, they go, oh, this is what the kingdom is going to look like when God fully and finally reigns. Can I get in on it right now? We are to be a preview of what is to come. And so when John writes the book of Revelation, he gives a sneak preview of what's to come. And in Revelation 7, the curtains are pulled. And we get a preview of something deeply powerful, something that we are to live into today. We are transported to the throne of God in Revelation 7. And what we see at the throne is absolutely breathtaking. 
At the throne, we don't see any separation or division based on economic status. At the throne, we don't see any separation or division based on ethnicity. On the throne, there's no separation or disconnection between people who look different, who are different colors. It says from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people, they all stand before the throne. This is a picture of heaven in its full reality, the fullness of it. And what we need to begin to see is a couple of things. Number one, that when folks are before the throne of God, and I've said it this way before, that we see that we take our ethnicity into eternity. That when, when, when Jesus Christ fully and finally reigns, we don't stop becoming who we are today. So you better get used to you. You're going to be you for a long time, okay? And so we take our ethnicity into eternity. There's no dissolving of differences. We take who we are into the world that is to come. And so when you look at Revelation 7, this it minimally speaks against a couple of things. It, it speaks against a, a sense of colorblindness, that many people are very proud to be colorblind. And we say things like, I don't see color, I see people. And that's very nice. That's very sweet. But you know who sees people? God sees people. At the book of Revelation, he says, I see, I saw, I saw with my own eyes people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every tribe there. And so th- this revelation in, in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 9, is to come against a sense of colorblindness. This is also to come against a sense of surface aesthetic diversity, that we're more than just a group of different people in close proximity. Our lives are to be touched by one another. Our lives are to be shaped by one another. We are called to be the new family of Jesus. And so what what we see in this picture, in this powerful event in Revelation 7, is that God makes room for everyone. Every color, every story, every culture, every ethnicity is given access to God. And what we see in this passage is, is a kind of powerful proximity, that these people are in close proximity to each other, and their lives are being impacted by those who are different. Now, as I've been looking at this passage, I, I've been thinking, what does it mean for us to live out of this beautiful vision? What does it mean for us to be the new family of Jesus? What does it mean for us to live in such a way where our lives are being impacted by people who are much different than we are? How do we move beyond a color blindness? How do we move beyond a kind of surface diversity? How do we truly live into the new family of Jesus with all of our distinctiveness, with all of our differences, with all the things that make us unique? And there's just two things I want to share. So much more I could be sharing. I just want to hold on to two things. And maybe in your time with God in prayer this week, you'll be wrestling with these things to be the kind of person that lives from the future. What does it mean to be uh, the new family of Jesus? What does it require for us? It requires this. The new family of Jesus requires incarnational listening as the foundation of our life together. A, A kind of presence an incarnational presence one to another as the foundation of our lives together. Now, when we think about the incarnation, we, we must think about Jesus. The incarnation, this is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate that God came, that God took on human flesh. He incarnated among us. And there are three steps to the incarnation. We, we see that Jesus, we have to leave our world. We have to enter into the world of someone else. And we have to allow ourselves to be formed by that new world. This is what Jesus does. Jesus leaves his world. He was in heaven. He leaves heaven. He enters into a new world. 
And he allows himself to be formed by that particular world, an ancient uh, Middle Eastern culture. He leaves heaven, enters into the new world, and allows himself to be shaped, formed by that new world. And every time we have a kind of spirituality of incarnation, we are working to live out the reality that we are the new family of Jesus. And one of the ways that we leave our world and enter into the world of someone else and allow ourselves to be formed by that new world is by a kind of deep listening to each other. Deep listening to each other. And when I talk about listening, when I talk about entering into the world of someone else, I'm specifically referring to this, that incarnational listening requires a careful and curious listening to the history, cultural beauty, values, pain, fears, and hopes of another. That when I say listening and being present to someone who's different, I'm talking about a careful and a curious listening to the history, cultural beauty, values, pains, fears, hopes of another. Now, the reality is, it's very easy to just stay in our world. It's safer in our world. It's safer to stay around people who look like us and dress like us and talk like us and vote like us. It's very easy to stay in our own cultural bubbles. But if we're going to be the new family of Jesus, we can't afford to stay in our cultural bubbles. We have to leave our world, enter into someone else's world, and allow ourselves to be shaped by that world. And unless there is a willingness to, co- to leave the comfort of our world... And enter into someone else's world, we're not going very far. Now, in my almost 10 years at New Life, my biggest learning curve, the world that I have entered into, uh, that, that, I, that, that I was not a part of before, has been the world of the Asian and Asian American community. And at New Life, we are incredibly blessed by the beautiful ethnic and cultural riches of Asian life. In a new life, we have people from all over Asia, whether from China and South Korea and the, the Philippines and Indonesia and Malaysia and Sri Lanka and India and Bhutan and Japan, and the list goes on and on. We, have, we are incredibly blessed by the riches of Asian culture. And my life has been enriched by the cultural beauty of families from Asia. Now, as one who grew up around Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, black folks, and folks from the Caribbean... You'd understand this doesn't typically happen. I've been exposed to the wonders of the Korean tradition of the first birthday and the celebration that goes with all of that. I've been introduced to dim sum and Filipino food. Amen. I, I remember having a lunch with a Korean pastor friend of mine from the city, and he brought me to a Korean a restaurant to eat Korean fried chicken, and he said to me, this fried chicken is going to change your life. <laughs> that man was right. That transported me into the heavenlies. But beyond food and birthday parties, I've been made aware in my nearly 10 years at New Life of the history of suffering of Asian people. And whether you're talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act whether you're talking about during World War II, women being used as a comfort women, or whether you're talking about the ongoing refusal to recognize Asian and Asian American voices in the larger conversation on public life, I've been exposed 
to the kind of pain and suffering of Asian people. And I've been able to enter into that world, not just the food, but the story, the history, the pain, the values, the joy. And, it, and what happens in reconciliation efforts is you leave your world and you enter someone else's world and you begin to find God there. You begin to find the beauties of God. You begin to find how God has been at work in a community. And, and it is only when we're living this kind of incarnational life, leaving our world, entering to the world of someone else, and allowing that world to shape our own lives, that's when we're doing the work of the new family of Jesus. I think about another example of someone leaving their world and entering to someone else's world in this great film called Munir and Gabo. And... Munyur Ngabo is a film that came out in 2009, and it's the powerful story of the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, where up to one million people were killed. And the story fo uh, follows a young man who's trying to exact revenge on someone who killed his father during this war and during this genocide. And so he travels throughout the film with a machete in his hand, looking for the man who killed his father. And at the end of the movie, we see something incredibly powerful. We see something incredibly redemptive. We see a, a, a little uh, perspective, a glimpse of reconciliation. And as I was thinking about this film again this past week, I thought about the levels of reconciliation at work. And the film, interestingly enough, was was uh, directed by a Korean-American guy named Isaac Chung. Isaac used to come to our church. He's in California now. But Isaac and I, we were in a small group together in Brooklyn for a couple of years. And so I got to know him. And he's the one who uh, created this film. And I was curious to hear, what was, what was it like for a Korean-American from Arkansas <laughs> to enter into the culture and history of the Rwandan people? And this is what Isaac said. I said, Isaac, tell me what were your thoughts, and this is what he said about the film. He said, reconciliation involves a willing act to be vulnerable to another culture. And I found that this can't be authentic if it's done with any feeling that the other culture is better or worse than your own. When I went to Rwanda, I thought that as a Korean who grew up on a farm in Arkansas, I knew about a lot about bridging cultures, but I realized I had some deep-seated prejudices in assuming that I had more to offer people in Rwanda than they had to offer me. It would have been just as false to assume that I had nothing to offer, demonizing my Western and Eastern upbringing to embrace a fully African way of life. Instead, when I embrace them as equals and they see me in the same way, I have seen us shape each other in a healthy way as good friends. I also found that there was never a moment of epiphany that made me embrace and learn from a Rwandan culture. Instead, every conversation and visit seems like a process. The way close family members might have issues they must work through for an entire lifetime. This isn't easy for me and doesn't come naturally, but my commitment to the friendships I have in Rwanda is a commitment to keep at the process of reconciliation, believing that deep down, this process itself is holy work. Isn't that beautiful? Leaving your world and entering into the world of someone else and being formed by that world and allowing that world to show you something of God. Now, you might not be going to Rwanda anytime soon, but God is inviting us to enter into the world of someone different than us. If we're going to be the church, 
If we're going to be a preview of what Revelation 7, 9 says, it means we cannot afford to just simply remain around people who look like us. That we, we can't afford to be simply shaped by people who look like us. That we must begin to do the challenging work of leaving our world in the same way that Jesus did. Entering into the world of others and beginning to be formed by that. And it takes listening to do this. It takes listening to people who don't look like us, who have different experiences than us, to hear patiently about their story, hear patiently about their pain, hear patiently about their fears, hear patiently about their values. It is only when we leave our world and enter into the world of someone else that we can truly begin to find God there. And so we need to leave our world, enter into the world of someone else, find God there. We need to do the work of incarnational listening. But here's the second thing I want to uh, submit to you as well for your prayer and your reflection. We must leave our world by incarnational listening, but secondly, and just as importantly, we must do the work of identifying our own implicit racial bias. One of the biggest challenges in the conversation on race is our refusal to do the work of identifying our implicit racial bias. And all of us in this room have an implicit racial bias. When we talk about institutional racism, what I'm going to talk about next week, it's about the way that society is disproportionately ordered, whereby power is given to some for their advantage and not given to others for their disadvantage. That's on the larger scope of it. When I talk about individual racial prejudice and implicit racial bias, this impacts and infects all of us. We have all been socialized. We've all been trained at how to think about people and how to perceive people. Your parents, your grandparents, your cousins, your uncles, your aunts, your friends have all wittingly or unwittingly, directly or indirectly, consciously or subconsciously have taught you how to view other people. And if we don't do the hard work of identifying the ways that we have been received a kind of racial bias against someone else, what begins to happen is this racial bias, you get enough people in a room who have enough racial bias that's unaware, this is how violence comes. This is how the dehumanizing of others come because we have not done the work of identifying our own implicit racial bias. And I said it before, we, listen, we have racial bias against people who look like us. How much more are we going to have racial bias against people who don't look like us? We have racial bias against people who we live around. How are we not going to have racial bias against people who we've never had a conversation with? We've, we all have our own implicit racial bias. And so listen, being biased is not the problem per se. We all biased. Being unaware of our bias is a problem. Don't be ashamed of your bias. We all have them. But what we should be working for is identifying the ways that our bias has contributed directly or indirectly to the, to the ongoing fragmentation of the world. And so we need to identify our own implicit racial bias. To have racial bias means that we make associations. We see someone and we make an implicit subconscious association. So you see a group of black men walking down the street. What associations do you make? 
You see a, a man who looks like he's from an Arab country get, in, get onto a plane. What associations do you make? You look into the, 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 a website to find a doctor and you see an Asian last name. What associations do you make? You see a Latino young man wearing a particular outfit walking down the street. What associations do you make? We see someone who looks homeless, maybe in an economic situation. What associations and assumptions do you begin to make? Now, when I think about racial bias, there's a story that comes to mind from this past summer. And, and there are many stories like this all over the board. And I came across this this past week, a story about a woman named Imani uh, Williams, a 27-year-old woman from Connecticut. Her shirt says, America needs nasty women. <laughs> and this story went viral recently because after the events of Charlottesville, there was a protest in Boston. And this Connecticut woman, Imani, was there. And it wasn't just her who was there. There were many different people that were there. And there were a group of people that were vocal supporters of President Trump. And Imani realized that as these supporters of President Trump, as they were in the crowd, that there were people coming against these supporters. And it started to get a little more hostile. And it looked like someone might be hurt. And so what she did was she recognized that this is not a good situation, whether she agreed with her politics or not, this is not a good situation for someone who is about to get hurt. They're decrying uh, violence, and yet something is about to happen to someone they disagree with. And so what she does is she, she goes through the crowd, and she, she, she approaches the, 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 pre, the support of President Trump to es help escort that person out of the crowd to their safety. And uh, police officers didn't believe her initially that she was there to help. They thought she was there to contribute to the problem. And, and soon after, this, this story went viral all around the place. And she, they asked her some questions about this, and this is what she said. She said, I saw a confrontation happening with a Trump supporter in the middle getting escorted by two police officers. The crowd of about 30 people was swelling around them, making it hard to move forward. I knew I had to help because it just wasn't a positive situation. At first, the Trump supporter and the two police officers escorting them weren't quite believing that I was there to help. But I kept saying, do you need help? And since the crowd was swelling around them, they finally agreed to let me assist them in, in getting through the mass of people. I didn't want to help them, but I knew I had to. Then she says, I can't judge others for their pain, but I knew what I could do to help the situation. I told the first Trump supporter as I was helping him that I didn't agree with him, but I just wanted everyone to be safe, and he should be on the other side of the fence. <laughs> you had to throw that in there. Um, Sometimes it's difficult to have a strong, having a strong moral compass in a mixed up world. But in this case, I saw where I could help and I did. That's all you can ever do. Now, when we see a woman with a, uh, an African American woman with a t-shirt that says American needs nasty woman, you, we've already made our associations. We've already come to our conclusions. We've already established boundaries. And this, and, and these stories are not unique to her. There's stories all over the place where you think someone is one thing and they turn out to be something totally other. And unless we're doing the work contemplatively, our first M is monastic. Why do we want to live a monastic life? So that we can live in the new family of Jesus. So, so that we contemplatively begin to examine our own implicit racial bias. And so I want to, I want to lead us in a quick 
spirituality of examination right now. I want to just offer you a couple of questions for your reflection right now, but prayerfully, your reflection this week and beyond. And my hope is that, that as, we are, as we begin to identify more of our own implicit racial bias, that when you're walking down the street and you see someone, that you are more aware of the ways that you are already projecting something onto that person. And it might be a small thing like that, but it is the small things like that that begin to turn our world around. It is you looking at someone entering into a plane, you looking at someone walking down the street and able to recognize, oh, wait a minute, I'm having now a particular judgment against this person. I don't even know this person. And I'm not, I'm not saying for you to be reckless and not be mindful and all that stuff. But what I am saying is that we do the work of identifying our own implicit racial bias. I wonder if we can take a couple of minutes and then we'll sing together, answering some of these questions or reflecting for a moment on these questions. How did your family talk about blank people, and you fill in the blank. How did your family talk about black people, Asian people, Latino people, white people, rich people, poor people, immigrants? How did your family talk about them? One of the reasons we want to go back in order to go forward is because all of us have been shaped. This is why this Tuesday we're, we're focusing on the genogram for those of you who are taking the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. We need to know how we've been shaped. Because all of us have been shaped. How did your family talk about you fill in the blank? Who, who are the people you were taught to fear? Who are the people you were taught to fear? Whether consciously or unconsciously, directly or indirectly. Fear is a powerful thing. And if you've been taught to fear someone, you can do significant damage in relationships. Who are the people you were taught to fear? Who are the people you were taught were beneath you? In, in Latino culture as well, this is not just, again, this, this is related not just to people who are from different ethnicities, different racial backgrounds. The color of your skin, the very color of your skin that light-skinned Latinos, we, we, were, we were subconsciously trained to think that we're better than dark-skinned Latinos, that there's a, there's a particular hair type that's good and a particular hair type that's not so good. We've been trained in that way. You've all been trained in that way. I've been trained in that way. Who are the people you've been taught were beneath you? What assumptions about a particular group of people do you hold? Listen, if we're not doing the work of this, we're not going anywhere. And so we need a spirituality of self-examination because we've all been infected by sin. And we've all been infected by our sinful families and our sinful cultural systems. And unless we're doing the hard work of identifying the ways that we've been shaped so that Jesus can reshape us and remold us and remake us, we're not going to be the new family that Jesus has called us to be. And so at the end of human history, John says, I saw from every person, from, from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, standing before the throne of God. What we need to ask God to do is, Lord, show us the lies that we've believed. Show us the lies that we've believed about this kind of person. Show us the, lie that, the lies that we believed about that kind of person.
And Lord, lead me into your truth. At the end of the day, our work for the kind of healing of the world and being a new family of Jesus must take into consideration a self-examination of who we are and how we have been shaped and inviting the Holy Spirit to reshape us, to remake us, to recreate, restore all to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. Make me a new heart, Psalm 51 says. Make me some, Lord, my, my heart is distorted. I can't even see straight. But, Lord, you can make me right. You can undo the lies. You can fill me with truth. And at the end of the day, we have to get a real, a whole new understanding of the gospel. That Ephesians 2 says these words, that Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. That when we look at the cross that we have here on this, right off the stage here, the cross is not just the bridge that gets us to God. The cross is a sledgehammer that tears down walls that separate us. And until we see the cross, not just as the bridge that gets us to God, but as a sledgehammer that tears down walls before us, we're not going to live in the new family of Jesus. Let's pray together. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. I invite you to close your eyes and have a moment of self-examination. Today's sermon is an opportunity for us to repent, all of us, starting with me. Repent because we have been shaped and formed, and we haven't done the work to identify the ways we've been shaped and formed. But Lord, you've called us to a countercultural and prophetic to be a counterculture and prophetic sign of the kingdom of God, that when people see us, they see something of the kingdom of God, that when you reign full and finally, this is what the world is going to be. And so, Lord Jesus, it starts with us as individuals. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our individual racial prejudice. Forgive us of the ways that we've made associations on people we don't even know. And Lord, forgive us of the ways because when we've done that, we've created cultures that lead to violence and to dehumanization. Holy Spirit, come and blow in this place. Lead us into the new family of Jesus where we can be present with one another, listening deeply and be shaped by the power of your spirit. And so Lord God, we sing to you now words of worship and praise. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's all stand together and let's sing. Unless God falls fresh on us, ain't nothing's going to happen. And this is the cry of our hearts. We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit over our church, over our churches, over our country, over our world. We need a fresh outpouring of the Spirit so that we can see God differently, we can see ourselves differently, we can see others differently. I want to invite our prayer team to come to my my left. There are really three ways to respond to this. 
three ways to respond to this. The first way to respond is to, to receive prayer. To receive prayer. And some of you came in today with some deep-seated uh, racial bias that needs to be, um, you need deliverance from some of the strongholds that you have in your life on how you perceive others. And God wants to work inside of you so that you can be a new kind of person with a new set of eyes. And so the first invitation is for folks who need to receive prayer, that the work of the Spirit might begin to overflow, not just in this place, but in our hearts. The second invitation is to, to take communion. I want to invite those who are going to be offering communion to come uh, to the table. Communion is not just something we are to do uh, from time to time or just haphazardly. This is a, a deep spiritual formation practice. And one of our elders, Bonnie, is going to offer that. It's, it's us reminding ourselves that we all belong to the broken body of Jesus. That we are gathered because of what Christ has done for us. And so when you take bread and you dip it in the cup, you are, you as it were, reminding yourself and the Holy Spirit is forming you to be a kind of person that works for the wholeness of the world. Because we are, have identified ourselves with the broken Jesus. And so you can come and receive the bread and the cup. Lastly, this is more of a, for some of you, one of the reasons we are called to remember our baptism, for those of you who are baptized, is because in our baptism, we are, we are essentially saying there is a new identity that marks our lives. It's the identity of the family of Jesus. I'm not just a, an individual follower of Jesus. What you're saying is, I now belong to a new family when you get baptized. And often what happens, we're so individualistic about baptism, we come out of the waters and we go, I'm a new person. You're a new person, but now you belong to a new family. And so we are to remember our baptism. And for those of you who have not been baptized, you're followers of Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, the invitation is for you to be baptized, for you to be obedient and take the next step, if you are a follower of Jesus, to say, I am, I am by me getting baptized, I'm saying, I belong to a new family, a family from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people gathered in the name of Jesus, not forsaking my, my cultural identity, but taking on a new kind of identity. That identity as the beloved ones, that identity of the new family of Jesus. And so if you've never been baptized, you can see one of our pastors after the service. You can fill out one of those cards there, take communion, receive prayer, invite those who are going to be offering prayer to come forward as well, uh, and begin to do the slow work of self-examination, examining your own heart. Where does God need to heal you? Where does God need to reform you? reshape you, remake you, that we are doing that kind of work. As we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a, a blessing. Those watching online as well, to open your hands. God, is, his arms are not too short where he can't reach you either. And we want to be a, a people marked by Jesus that we are a new family. And so, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. May you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the new reality of the new family of Jesus, that God has called us 
from every walk of life to be a new family here at New Life. And may we listen deeply to one another, to our own histories, our values, our fears, our joys, our pain, our sorrows. May we enter into the world of someone else. And may we do the hard work of self-examination, allowing the Holy Spirit to reorder our lives and our hearts. And may we be a witness to the world in our workplaces, on social media, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, that there's a new reality that's here. The future of the kingdom of God has come. And may we be those kind of people. And so I bless you all today in the strong and the beautiful and the reconciling name of Jesus. And everyone said, 